Over the Ball is brought to you by Soccer America. Soccer America, the soccer paper of record. Go to SoccerAmerica.com and sign up for your subscription today. And by Nella from Fitbiomics. A Harvard doctor has found the probiotic strain that is found in most world-class athletes. Not all probiotics are the same. And by FundraiseForYou.net. FundraiseForYou.net provides solutions to coaches and athletic organizations that need to raise money for their programs. More information on all our sponsors at OverTheBall.com slash sponsors. Hey, this is Bob Lee, and you're listening to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, the world's game from an American perspective. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn. That's me, alongside a Division II national champion and coach of the year, now taking over the women's program at Loyola Marymount, Chris Shamides. Today's guest, you're going to want to stick around, everybody. Jim Piddick is an actor, writer, producer, and a huge Crystal Palace supporter, fan, whatever you want to call it on both sides of the pond. Uh, you know him from all kinds of work in the entertainment industry. Uh, Lethal Weapon 2, he plays that guy. He's got a South African accent. By the way, one he did uh, as a dare, um, when being, having a South African accent wasn't very popular, uh, but a very great memorable line. Independence Day was in that, a, a mighty wind, and of course, a great role in Best of Show where he... Uh, Jim play he improvs as a straight man with the amazing Fred Willard in that uh, movie so you know Jim as soon as you see him but you're not going to see him today because it's on a podcast but anyway he's got a new book out caught with my pants down and other tales from life in Hollywood I think I could write a couple of those chapters uh, in this book he talks about his experiences in the entertainment world from London to Hollywood back again it's a real fun read I read it over the weekend so uh and I saw a lot of football this weekend Chris uh what did you watch I watched a little bit of the El Clasico Barcelona won big Premier League and of course some FA Cup action what took up your time yeah no FA Cup is going to be exciting because we have yeah. City and Liverpool matched up next you know so that's always nowadays the big match in England uh, and then the Classico is the Classico. And now it's yeah. Xavi there, and you didn't expect that, that score line. But Ancelotti took responsibility, basically protecting the players. Uh, but Barcelona mm -hmm. scored in all ways. They don't score on corners very often. So when that's happening, uh, mm -hmm. things are probably going to go well for them. They've had a score in corners uh, now that Messi's gone a little bit more, I would say. And, uh, and yeah, he didn't throw the players under the bus, Ancelotti, uh, as, as Mourinho does. He actually yes. you know, took ownership of it. And, you know, you're talking about the FA Cup semifinal, which is, uh, yeah, that's a big one, especially talking about the Premier League. The title for the Premier League is up a week or two after that. So, uh, you know, this is a long season, but it's great when these games really come down to something and still mean something at the very end. Yeah, I mean, we, we're looking at the possibility of seeing Man City and Liverpool in their prime in the FA Cup, then playing, squaring off potentially for the three points that decide the Premier League, and yep. then potentially in the Champions League. Amazing. Right. Yeah, really, really fantastic. And, you know, Liverpool has a chance at all four. Um, I don't, what, do you think that's likely? I don't think that's likely. I don't know in our game, in the game of football, I don't know if you can, can pull that off and beat Man United likely two no. games in a row, you know? Yeah, likely no. I mean, the question is how many matches can they cram in? Because the further they continue in each of these competitions, the more fatigue that sets in as the schedule gets right. compacted. So it's a big challenge for them. But with so much that's on the line, including the history of it, they're, they're certainly going to be motivated for it. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about that this weekend, the big teams, which there's such a separation. It's almost like the separation of wealth in the United States, the top 1% and everybody else, the top 1% of the football teams. Uh, they they have more depth, but they play a lot more games. And right. uh, you saw it with Liverpool this weekend playing in the quarterfinals, uh, where Ethan Horvath made a great save, uh, by the way. Do you see that one? I didn't. Yeah, against um, Firmino. Uh, Firmino, I just love him. He never sees, always nonplussed. He's like in the box. It's like Gretzky when he was in the, but he's like, when Gretzky was behind the net, he was just relaxed and calm, where I'd be shitting bricks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he just, Firmino just tried to just, kind of lift the ball over the keeper's head yeah. and it would have worked except yeah. Horvath made a great save. So he seems to be in form it was his first loss in, I think eight games, seven or eight games. So uh, he's playing, he's in form. We'll see if uh, Burhalter uses him. So let's talk a little bit about the thing that's on everybody's mind this week, especially, you know, American based fans of this game that we, uh, we love so much Mexico. Wednesday in Azteca, uh, a lot of bad news coming out of the U.S. camp as far as injuries and player rotations. As a coach, uh, you know, how do you deal with that? How do you approach your players? Because 
do they take it as like we're wounded or do they take it as like, holy shit, this is my chance uh, for, in a big game to, to make yeah. my statement? I, I think if you've done a good job, you've always prepared your group for these situations in advance, you know, so that when it hits the fan a little bit, they're not as rattled. Um, so you always lay the groundwork. And I think he has of this next man up mentality, even though he hasn't necessarily coach a team that way he has talked right. to them about that so hopefully mm -hmm. that's what factors into this situation because they don't have a choice they're gonna have to go down there they have to play i think it's thursday actually the 24th i believe but like man oh right the game be, yeah i said yeah. wednesday it's thursday right yeah, yeah. So i'm gonna be in it's austin gonna, so. okay okay uh it's gonna be you know can you get points out of that because now you're sitting and you're golden you know but you can't expect points and now there's more pressure on the next one if you don't get it what do you like as a coach again? How do you approach something where the players played well during qualify? They 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 kind of beat up on Mexico last time. I thought they really kind of controlled the midfield. Uh, they had the better opportunities. They had more possession, which was sort of new. You have that that confidence of that, but now you're dealing with some injuries. You're going to Azteca. Do you try to continue to play like the big swinging dick and win, or do you just sort of hold off for a tie or I mean a, a draw? Uh, or do you beat yourself up so much in the Mexico game at, at altitude that you come back home for a game that you must win back here uh, a little banged up? Yeah, he's got a big decision to make because you can put out your best horses and if you don't get the result, now you might limp into these next two games. Or you can potentially protect the guys by putting in a secondary group and mm -hmm. hope for something but still be fresh for the next six points that are available after that. I mean, that's why these coaches have to make these decisions uh, in real time to prepare them for it. But I think if you go in with less than your best, that doesn't send a great message. But if you go for your best in a game where you're statistically, historically not going to get points, you might right. be shooting yourself in the foot. So I think there's some kind of, inner working of how a certain team works and how much you rotate. And that's going to play into this situation. Well, it seems like a lot of it is dependent upon the mentality uh, and the fitness level of coming in against Panama because Panama and Costa Rica, which we've never won down there, by the way, um, both highly motivated teams, teams that are still in the fight. So uh, they've got a battle on their hands coming home. So of those two choices, which do you think, it sounds like you're, you're thinking Berhalter is going to throw all the horses at Mexico. I think so, because I think the message that you're sending your own group is uh, you might lose them if you don't go with your best. You can never throw away a game. You have to put out your group and say, hey, let's let's play. You know, this is the United States of America. We're playing against Mexico, and there's a lot to be said for it. I know you mentioned the previous two games against Mexico, but it's not the same. It's yeah. not a qualifier. Well, it's World Cup know? qualifying, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's, I tried to tell that to my kids. Is like, okay, when they're winning this, when they're beating Mexico in the last few months or whatever, I said, this is kind of fantasy land. This is not mm -hmm. the real one. So in qualifying, in Azteca, that's the real one. And everyone in Mexico knows that, and we all know that too. So they're going to make it certainly hard for us. Having said that, it's not the best Mexican team ever, so we might be able to get something out of it. Right, and they're a little on the older side. The U.S. men are a little bit on the younger side, which could be, I think at this level, World Cup qualifying, youth helps you because those games are played at such a high rate uh, of speed uh, that, you know, especially people, players that are in their, you know, their domestic leagues and are a little either tired. I mean, you're fit, but you're also a little banged up, as I said before. So, so it should be interesting. They've got like, uh, let's see, Anthony Robinson will be in. Sergino Dest had an injury for Barcelona. Um, but he'll be here in camp. Uh, Yedlin and Cannon, uh, that's uh, one of the outside backs. And then uh, Miles Robinson, Walker Zimmerman, James Sands, Aaron Long, uh, and Eric Palmer Brown. Did any of those uh, surprise you? I mean, John Brooks has been left off. Tim Reen yeah, has I mean, been left out. And uh, Mark McKenzie has been as well. Yeah, I mean, I think the Brooks one is obviously the one people are going to talk about because he has been a part of things. But at the same time, I think Greg Berhalter is – kind of drawn a line and said, hey, this hasn't been working and these guys are getting results, so we're going to stick with them. I mean, there's options. Reggie Cannon can certainly be out there and do okay. And interestingly enough, uh, LAFC this weekend, Kellen Acosta played it right back. So that's right. always uh, 
an option on the menu. He, if you he can play it. everywhere. I wonder if that's almost like, you know, one of those situations where you can play every position. And so sometimes it hurts you because you never get yeah. comfortable in one position, uh, but you love having that as a coach, having a utility uh, player like that. So, um, uh, so it, I think what you say about the age of the Mexican team, that's really important, you know, mm -hmm. because they probably will go all in on this U S game and may have to sacrifice points on the back end of this three game cycle. Cause they may not be able to regenerate the same way. It's just reality. As much as we have all this stuff dialed in, it's three games in 10 days or whatever. And that's really difficult. You know, like just watching yeah. tennis. I, I like to watch tennis. Rafa Nadal is playing in Indian Wells in the final yesterday and he had been undefeated all of 22. So it was, I think he was something like 20 and 0 going into the final. And then he loses a match where it's the only day all year long he's had to play back to back. He played on Saturday and then he had to play on Sunday and he couldn't get through it. And yeah. he's older and it's harder for him to regenerate. A good soccer player too. Thanks for bringing him into the mix. Yeah. So, you know, his uncle played for Barcelona. Oh, did he really? So he comes yeah. from a, a, yeah. a from a, a whole bunch of athletes. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this, though, as a coach, have you been in a situation, you always have inside scoops on the national team and what's, what's happening, but when you bring a team in like this, this quickly, and you have to turn it around to start playing it at the high level right away, is there a different sort of mentality? Did you come in, is fitness sort of out the window? Is it just sort of, uh, you know, somewhat uh, staying loose, staying, you know, um, ready? to play and then talk tactics? How do you yeah, play? Yeah, you're not going to move the needle on the fitness side. They are where they are. And so all you're really doing is tracking over the last two weeks in particular, how much they've played, how much they have in, how sharp they are, how many minutes they've had, how well they've played, what positions they've played in. You know, you're tracking all that to try to get many efficiencies so you can keep people comfortable in, in their role based on where they are at the club, but also what their, what their role is with the national team. So as you balance that, you're just trying to keep continuity and efficiency within the group. You don't want to change too much because mm -hmm. you've done everything you can to get to this point. So this is not the time to change tactics or do anything. So when you asked before, like, what is their style of play? I would be shocked if they played differently. Right. I mean, that, that would be counterintuitive to everything he's been preaching this whole cycle. Mm -hmm. um, the midfield is, you know, going to miss, miss Weston McKinney big time. I mean, I, I see him as the emotional leader, the team leader on that team. Uh, he'd be wearing the band if it wasn't for some, you know, short-term personal issues that he kind of had. Uh, they've got Tyler Adams uh, back, which is good. Uh, Yanis Musa, which is good. Kellen Acosta, who you mentioned, could play outside back or in the midfield. Luca de Torre and, um, and Buzio. Gianluca Buzio and Christian Roldan, who, you know, gets a, an unfair amount of criticism. I think he is a hardworking player, gives it his all. He plays a lot of different roles for Burhalter as well. Uh, how do you think they're going to make out, you know, without McKenney in there? I think Kellen Acosta has an important role to play. You know, yeah. he's got the mobility, especially in the first game, to go to that place and have some experience in terms of how to suffer because that game is going to involve suffering. And so you want <laughs> yeah, some, some veterans who have kind of been through that and understand the ups and downs, not only uh, of, of playing Mexico, but within 90 minutes in Azteca, you have to have the guys who have resilience. So Talk a little bit about that. that. Talk about a little bit about, you know, because Azteca, Azteca is a tough-ass place to play. Uh, talk about that a little bit, the altitude and everything else that you have to go yeah, through. Yeah, I mean, the atmosphere there. is that much more intense, and everything we hear is about the animosity, you know, of, of the match, of the tradition, of the history, and, and, and just literally U.S. Mexico. And so that alone – is a big game and then when you put it in the context of qualifying and then the last round of qualifying and they're and they're equal on points i mean i think you're looking at expecting anything and everything in terms of a disruptive atmosphere a yeah. sold out azteca and and these players will have to be put through the gauntlet yeah and i think the last round gave them a bit of a taste of the adversity that you have to you know uh, withstand in some of these qualifiers uh, but going down there is a really a, a special treat so uh some other you know kind of good news bad news uh, brendan aronson hurt his knee but he's going to be in camp uh, timothy Weah, who did uh you know um a lot of damage out on that wing with a lot of speed uh, will be back christian Polisic, Ariola, jordan morris and gio reyna is back 
Uh, two guys who are not back, uh, Conrad De La Fuente, who's been playing pretty well, I think. He had got 70 minutes, 71 minutes this last week, and Matthew Hoppe uh, are out. Um, but how do you look at Pulisic? Because uh, Mexico tends to beat him up a little bit. Yeah, he's been in pretty good form, scoring goals rather consistently, which is great. I think the big question mark to this whole round is Reina, because I think he's the one who brings something a little bit different, can unlock things a little bit, but has been injured and hasn't gotten a full run of play. So now how many minutes can he truly play in? Is it a little bit in each game off the bench? Does he start and play one or two, but can't play the – there's one game where he can't play, and then which game does he not play in? That's, those are all really big questions. And, nice. and the layout of these three opponents, it's not great. You know, to have Mexico first is tough. Right. Yeah. It's going to take a lot out of them. Because you're playing tough uh, and hard, and it's going to beat you up. You're going to you're going to take your dings. So, um, I, you know, it's it should be. I have a feeling Gio Reyna will not start this game. He played Sunday in Germany. Uh, I would say he won't he won't even see the pitch against Mexico, and then uh, he'll get some time, and then maybe the the second and third game um, we'll see because he's tired and he's just coming back from an injury. So, uh, you know, Ariola, you know, has got some speed, um, but up front. Uh, Jesus Ferreira had a great weekend with FC Dallas, had a first-half hat trick, uh, so he's found his form. Uh, Ricardo Pepe, who is everybody's darling for a week or two there, um, is in the mix. And Jordan Pivak, who's been playing pretty well. Two guys who did not make it up front were Jazzy Sardis, who's taken an awful lot of criticism, and Josh Sargent, who still it remains to be seen whether Josh can play at this level. I mean, he's doing it in the Premier League. He's getting some minutes. He's changing the way he plays as a player, or they're asking him to do different things. Um, so whether he can adjust at this level down the line, not sure. Uh, Zardes was a Burhalter favorite, but seems to have not impressed enough. Do you agree? Yeah, I mean, Zardes is uh, – there's some coaches – who really go for him and some who don't. I'm a little confused with how Greg has handled him because he's been involved in certain parts of the cycle in certain camps, but not in all. And that's yeah. a little odd because usually Zardes is someone's cup of tea or he's not because you know exactly what he brings to the table and what he doesn't. So the change of mind there confuses me a little bit. I wonder what he would say to that and whether that's disruptive to the group. You know, I understand that you have to perform, but at the same time, there's, no been, there's been no real consistency from that position anyway. So why drop right. him? Like, what are you pointing to to drop him? I'm not sure, you know, what's going on behind the scenes there. I think PFOC being a little bit of form is that third striker that they bring in. Um, you know, but having said that, Jazzy's artist, I've met him. I've interviewed him a bunch of times. Got to be one of the nicest guys on the planet. Oh, yeah. He is just yeah. a sweetheart. So it's always, it's always tough. Like you're, you're, we're critical of players, but, uh, you know, always separate the player from the person sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's yeah. local to L.A., played at Cal State Bakersfield. Is just a local guy who kind of came up out of nowhere and then jumped up a whole bunch of levels, which wasn't his fault. He should be rewarded for that. But yeah. then they criticize him for the things that he never was. So, you know, that's not necessarily fair, but I guess that comes with the terrain a little bit. But I wonder about Reyna because, you know, when you say you don't think he plays, I wonder if the game slows down enough. He might be the perfect guy to bring in, maybe not for his pace necessarily. 70th minute or so. Technically to unlock it. Yeah, there could be some value there. Now look at, like, you know, even the platoon subbing. You watch what Klopp did uh, Sunday. It made a, a huge impact right away, you know, Thiago, and um, it made it. It made, yeah, I think he made three or four uh, substitutions in a row, and, and there was a difference right away. So these are like these smart tactical decisions when you you put someone in. I, I've always been uh, at a loss when you know, 50 minutes in, uh, somebody comes out. It's like, wow, it's usually that 65, 70, 75 minute. You know, for the, the, when the yeah. game does slow down, a new player can come in and make a difference. Well, there's two sides to that. One is how, how long do you want to play somebody, the first player? Mm-hmm. And then the second part of that is how many minutes can or should that substitute play based on where his fitness level is. Mm-hmm. So it's not just performance. Sometimes it's also what they feel like through the medical staff is the smart amount of minutes for that person to play. And we really have to deal with that in a three game cycle in 10 days. Cause now that's more than ever before something that has to be dialed in. I used to remember Kobe Jones back when Kobe started to age out a little bit, but he still had those wheels 
And he'd be put in by Arena maybe in the 75th minute and just would piss off Mexico to no, no end. Yes. And they'd go at him. So, you know, you yeah. can really – and I think Jordan Morris does that a little bit with his speed. Maybe Paul Ariola come in with that, like, frenetic sort of energy that can make yeah. something happen. Yeah, um, it seemed like Kobe was, like, <laughs> literally their favorite person to kick. To kick. Oh, and the poor, right? he's the nicest guy, too. Another yeah. sweetheart of a person. Yeah. It's just terrible stuff. So, <laughs> all right, man. So we'll take a break here. And when we come back, we're going to be talking with Jim Pidak. But Jim has got a great book out. It's called Caught With My Pants Down and Other Tales from a Life in Hollywood. It's just great stories. He's a big Crystal Palace fan. Uh, he, we're going to hear what his thoughts are from the big quarterfinal FA Cup win. Uh, yesterday or Saturday for, with Crystal Palace. So, uh, mm-hmm. so stick around. You're listening to Over the Ball. Uh, joining us now on Over the Ball is a man who has uh, done a lot in his life in the world of entertainment and beyond. Jim Piddick is an actor, writer, producer, and a comedian who has written a great new book, Caught With My Pants Down and Other Tales from a Hollywood Life. It is a great read. I read it over the weekend. Jim, welcome to Over the Ball. Thank you. Happy to be here. So I got to tell you, you, uh, you put this whole pandemic to use. You wrote a bunch of screenplays and you wrote a book, which originally was supposed to be a one man. And then it looked like you had so many stories, great stories, by the way, to tell that uh, you, you came up with a book instead of a one man. Yeah, exactly. It. Yeah. <laughs> I sort of thought maybe I'll end my long theatrical hiatus and go back to the theater after doing film and TV almost exclusively. And then uh, well, I began writing it, and then it really, yeah, I realized it was ten hours at least, and no theater audience would sit through that, and I probably wouldn't survive it performing it. So, um, so yeah, that I, I then thought I'd do it as a book, and then around the time of the pandemic, I, I started it. And what would have probably taken me five years took me five months, which was good in that sense, you know. And uh, yeah. I, it was a very fruitful time. Yeah. So you wrote this book, and I think uh, we were talking about you before you got on. You must you must be in a good place because your beloved Crystal Palace, uh, great quarterfinal win in the FA Cup. Yeah, there. Uh, you you know it's one of the chapters in the book, Jim. I wish it was longer, and I think you were a bit uh, humble there, but you played a big part in getting them back on their feet financially with just your enthusiasm and and using your connections. And talk about that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it was in 1999. I was over in England producing and writing a, a show for the BBC and, and the club had gone into liquidation, well, not liquidation, administration, which is the step before liquidation. And um, it really looked bleak. And so I started uh, thinking, how can I stop this? I feel so helpless. And I got in touch with uh, a, a very, very high-powered lawyer called Richard House and then a, a sports writer called Paul Newman, not that one. And... Um, uh, and, and we kind of formed this supporters trust, which raised uh, quite a lot of money very quickly. And, um, and then sort of basically got a lot of donations. And we, we kind of helped save the club. We facilitated the takeover by this guy who ended up kind of running the ground, uh, running the club into the ground if, over the next 10 years. So uh, that was another issue. And then four friends of mine actually uh, kind of came in and, and, and bought the club and the ground and have turned it into this incredible what it is today. So, yeah, I was involved, quite involved. And bizarrely, uh, I don't have a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, but I, uh, my trust brochure that I wrote this dramatic and uh, uh, groveling appeal for money ended up in the, in the Football Hall of Fame in, in England. Well, you talk about one story where I really identified with where they asked you to MC this event and you had to basically ask the Crystal Palace fans for money, you know, to support the team. And yet you were doing it in front of a half of a man, Manchester City crowd. Yeah. You took, you took a, the starch right out of it. Talk about that one. Yeah. The chapter's called Kissing 8,000 Asses. Um, it, was a, it, was, it was a game. I'd flown over from LA uh, to, to, to go to a game and I literally lay around at Heathrow got straight in a car, went down to Selhurst Park, arrived there about 10 to 3, and Paul Newman, not that Paul Newman, gave me the script he'd written for a comedian to do at half-time in the middle of the pitch, you know, appealing for money. And this comedian, who was very experienced, suddenly had cold feet and said, I don't feel really, I can't do, I'm too, I've got this nerve, bundle of nerves. And, they, and so Paul just handed it to me and said, you can do it, right? <laughs> so I spent the whole first half looking at this thing as I was watching the game, going, okay, trying to familiarize myself with it. And at half time, I was led out onto the pitch with a microphone. What a, what a nightmare. What a and nightmare. It was like, I was like a lamb to the slaughter because yeah. one entire stand had been given up to the Manchester City fans it, who were top of the championship, which is the league below Premier League. And uh, they were 
yeah, we were, I think, fighting relegation or in the middle. And so there was a 20,000 crowd, 21,000. So that was the biggest amount of people I'd ever spoken to in my life. And uh, I'm standing there. And as I'm walking to the center circle, I'm hearing the city fans singing, who are you, who are you, who are you? <laughs> and making, Busting your balls. And making oh. kind of uh, jerking off gestures as if they knew I did in my spare time. Oh, and, the English. <laughs> and then, yeah, the charming English. And I thought, I am absolutely fucked here unless I manage somehow to do something appalling, which I did. It is utterly shameless. I turned to the Manchester City fans and I said, I'd like to welcome everybody here who's come down from Manchester, all you Manchester City fans. I hope that you win the championship, get promotion, and that you beat Manchester United home and away next year. And there was this kind of, suddenly they all went quiet. And I thought, oh God, what's going to happen now? And then there was this explosion of applause and cheers. And then it was completely quiet again. And then I could turn and do the whole speech to the other three sides of the ground and get my message across. But it was utterly shameless. I mean, Guinness Book of Records does not uh, have no. uh, uh, the most asses kissed in 10 seconds, but uh, I did it. That's what you know, the title of the chapter is. And look, I've been in a lot of those situations and people either love you and you have the meeting out of your hand or they hate you. Yeah. And I- I think basically what you did, Jim, was you were your own opening act. So you opened, yeah. you opened up and then you turned and did your performance. No, I just sold my soul is what I did. But it's fine. Hey, so, you know, you've been in the States for a long time. You've raised your daughter here. Uh, you, you know, you're, you're an, are you an American? Do you have your... Yeah, yeah, I, I have both. Yeah. I got both yeah. passwords. Yeah. So um, it must be great for you to just see how big the Premier League has gotten here over the years that you've been living in the United States. I remember living in Hermosa Beach going to Besties, George Bessel bar there. Yeah, yeah. Watching six in the morning, you know, be watching the games. And, and yeah. we all loved it. It was like this cult uh, thing. Yeah, but now, yeah. now it's mainstream, big numbers, uh, and everybody's watching Premier League football. It's incredible. When I, I, when I first, they first, I got a huge one of those old 10-foot satellite dishes. You remember those days? Yeah. I had one in the, I guess it was the early 90s. I had it in the back of my garden in Studio City, and I used to pick up the one broadcast game that they would show to the, around the world. And, and then I'd tape it and give it to my friends. Um, so that was going back. And, and, and you're right. I mean, it was, it was nothing. I mean, the Premier League. And, and now it's extraordinary. I have a flag, a Crystal Palace flag in, in my property. I'm not really a flaggy person, but I, I had a flagpole when I moved into the house. And I thought, I, I'm not putting, you know, a nationalistic thing. I'm just going to put the Palace thing. And people would just go, what is that? You know, what is it? And I, right, moved in right. there, I moved in there 12, almost 12 years ago. And now I, I go out and everybody pretty much stops me and goes, oh, I saw Palace Drew at the weekend. It was, you know, great result. And where are they now? They're in the, they, in the top 10 and they, they'll suddenly talk football. And I, you know, wore a Palace top to pick up some groceries the, the other day, um, a training top. And, and this woman who was probably in her early 20s, if that sort of dropped the groceries off and she saw my thing and said, oh, yeah, that was an amazing result against Man United. You know, blah, blah. <laughs> just, wow. wow. Yeah, wow. what a difference. It's just <laughs> night and day. Yeah. So, you know, a little bit of your backstory, you were a player, you played in college uh, yeah. in England. Um, and you see, so you played for that team. And it was interesting because, I, I, you know, just reading your biography, you went away to school to boarding school, right? I think fostered a, a kind of a, a sense of, uh, of independence perhaps because yeah. then when you were, you know, you went to theater school and then coming out of that, you went to work, you know, in a children's theater, you were a garden gnome, I think was your first <laughs> yeah, role yeah. professionally. Yeah. But, my first role, professional role, garden gnome. But you pretty much hit it pretty quick. I think you had the hoods, but ahead to the States, uh, Berkeley, I think you started to direct there, right? Well, yeah, my career has been sort of, it's the, the, the tortoise and the hare, really. I, I've survived 44 years, and, and it's been a steady climb. But I have had a few moments where there was a sudden spurt. And um, in film, Best in Show kind of suddenly jettisoned me from sort of people knowing who I was, but it, they, they reminded me that I was still alive or introduced me to new people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Lethal Weapon too, obviously, to a degree, and Independence Day. But, the, but right. Best in Show was the one that kind of really emphasized that I was alive and well and still kicking. But, but when I first came to the States, which was for three months, I'd been offered a job directing two plays for the drama school I'd been at. And I was 24 and it was for three months. 
And I had been unemployed for a little while in England. I'd done a tiny bit of rep work in this children's theater, as, I, as you mentioned. And I thought, well, this is great. My father had died recently very prematurely. Uh, and I felt like I needed to get away and for three months. And before I came, though, I, I had seen this one-man show about a soccer goalkeeper playing on a Sunday morning called The Boy's Own Story. And I really liked it and thought this would be great to try and do while I'm in America if I have spare time. Mm -hmm. And I took it around to every theatre in San Francisco and beyond, and everyone said, are you, are you crazy? Who are you? And I was an unknown British actor with a play, a one-man show about a sport nobody gave a screaming crap about. Right, right. That over, point. over two. And, and, and rightfully, they all said, piss off. And then I was about to get on the plane home about, you know, and then I got a call saying this guy had, had a, ran a small 99-seat theatre. It was well-established in San Francisco. He said, the first play of our season has fallen through. Can you get it together in three weeks? So I said, sure, cancelled my flight home, hired a director called Richard Side, an English guy I knew, and we got the show up. And the opening night was full because all the people I'd, students I directed at the drama school wanted to see me fall flat on my face. Sure, the teacher, so they that, want to see the teacher fail. That's exactly, <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, you can talk a good game. Yeah. And so that was fine. The second night I had four people in the audience in, who all sat in the front row, and this show was nuts. It was an hour and a half of talking, you know, running, jumping, leaping. It was mad. I mean, the main tour de force of that theatre piece is that the actor is still alive at the end of it. Yeah. And, and I got a standing ovation from the four people, which was lovely. It was so <laughs> touching. And so, then the reviews came out the next day and they were like an actor's wet dream. They were extraordinary. And, and right. the show was sold out immediately, was extended twice, took me to, I did it in Minneapolis. It, it got booked into Off-Broadway and that took me to New York and within seven months, I think it was, of finishing the show in San Francisco, less than that, less than that, six months, I was starring on Broadway with George C. Scott because I had got signed by an agent. They'd sent me out in an audition, first audition in New York, and I got cast. And Amazing. I was suddenly in a hit show on Broadway with George C. Scott. So that was one of those moments where my life went from zero to 10 very quickly. I mean, life really was coming at me very fast at that time. Yeah, you're working, you have this, the, the usual George C. Scott stories in his underwear, getting yeah, yeah. every every week. And, the usual you, ones. <laughs> the usual ones that we hear. Like, you're about. saying it like everybody knows those stories. <laughs> yeah, and then, um, and then you were in the original cast of Noises Off, which ran yeah. for a long time. Uh, it was pretty fantastic. So then yeah. uh, you, you started on the West Coast, but then you went East, and I don't think that's the way people usually go. They usually go the other way, don't they? Uh, I, yes, I went east to New York for three years and was doing nonstop Broadway. I was very lucky. And then I, I kind of got a bit burnt out. I, I was doing eight shows a week for three years. And I had ended up uh, with my name above the title on Broadway. And I thought, I don't know if I can top this. Right. And I always wanted to do film and TV and I hadn't been getting any of that work. So I thought, I'm just going to go to LA and give it a try rather than go backwards to London um, and start all over again there. So I came to LA fairly cold. And in those days, Broadway meant very little. It was like, oh, that's a street in downtown L.A. Uh, so I, I kind of, it took me a little while to get going, but I did. And, and then I kind of got some traction. And, and then I started writing in my spare time because I had more time on my hands once I stopped doing theatre. And then the writing took off in a quite a big way. Uh, so I became like an actor, screenwriter. I had two parallel careers. And, and I've been doing it ever since. You know, that was uh, 1990, I suppose, I sold my first screenplay. Yeah. And so for 45 years, I've been an actor, or 40, 43 years. And then um, for, for 33 years as, as a writer as well. So you worked uh, as a writer, and it, you've worked consistently. It, you talk about it through your book. So you, you're using your private school education, worked well, because you, you knew how to put pen to paper, yeah. um, which, yeah. which gives you a sense of, of uh, you know, self uh, motivation. You can actually have some control over your own life, which as an actor, many times you can. And one of the things I thought was interesting reading your book was uh, all the work you were doing with the BBC for best of show, which you're best known for. And if everyone saw your face, they would know exactly who you are. Yeah. You flew to Vancouver, like on an overnight flight and you, you only taped, I think a day or two. And then yeah. your best. And then the thing you're doing back in the BBC was like six days a week. Constant yeah, yeah. work, you know, and it was, yeah, it was bizarre. Work. It was bizarre. I mean, I just had that three days and luckily the BBC let me out to, to go and do that. So in the middle of the week, so, and then come back for the taping of the show at the end of the week. 
And I went and, and, and I was booked for three days in Vancouver to do Best in Show. And, and the first two days didn't shoot because they were running behind. And then I said, and then they said, we, we, we're still running behind. We've got, we got to do it on Friday. And I said, I've got to leave Thursday night. I've got to fly back. <laughs> so Fred and I, Fred Willard and I shot all that stuff pre-dawn to post-dusk in about 12 hours straight, I think, in an empty stadium with a few extras behind us to look, make it look full. Uh, and we just went. I mean, we saw footage of the show that they'd shot already. And uh, Chris would say, okay, now it's the Hound group. Uh, off you go, Fred, Jim, follow, <laughs> whatever. Oh and and it, and it was, uh, it, I'm sure, because we're basically in the last half of the movie. So it's 45 minutes. We're in and out of that last half of the movie. It must be the most amount of footage that's ever been shot and ended up in a movie in one day. I mean, it has to be. In a film, I said, the films I've been in, uh, you shoot for three days and you're in the thing about five seconds. So it's Absolutely. amazing. That's yeah, so the that's, normal. It's a big story. Yeah. Uh, and I think it is for comedians, stand-up comics, I know for sure, that is one of their favorite movies because of that scene and because mm -hmm. your ability to, I don't know if it's because you're English and the dry English stuff, but you, your ability to keep a straight face and yeah. keep lines and comment with funny lines of your own was just, is, is absolute genius. If you have not seen it, check out this man uh, with, with the great Fred Willard. It, it is just, a, it's a joy to watch. And it's, a, it's in everybody's top 10. And I think Bill Hader's top 10 as well. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, and it holds up completely. The film still works today. There's not the slightest bit dated. Um, and uh, it was a great lesson for me because I, I'd always been more of the kind of clown in a comedy duo. And I had to learn with Fred Willard, you know, who is a rambunctious monkey who, you know, it was like being driven in a car by a rambunctious monkey, monkey who's downed a, you know, a quart of gin and blindfolded and you're sitting shot, riding shotgun going, hanging on for dear life. And he's a genius. He's an absolute oh. genius. And, and I, had, I figured out that I had to react rather than act. And and be keep the because we were on camera allegedly in this you know commentating on this dog show right. so I couldn't you know laugh as as it happens you do see me sort of suppressing a laugh but that worked because what I played was I found him amusing at first then slightly confusing and then really annoying and, <laughs> and all the time I'm having to hide that and keep yeah. the show on track yeah. and then I finally get back at him after sort of enduring this nonsense for God knows how long. And he says something as inane as he said all the way through. And I just turn to him and go, yes, I remember you said that last year. And, and it, just, <laughs> it just cut his balls off completely. And it was my knife in the heart moment that I was like, yes. Nice. You got one off. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but, but no, I mean, it, it's weird that's become, I mean, it was a cult classic. I'm not even sure you put it a cult classic now. It is a classic. I mean, right. people, people put it in their top 10 comedies all the time, yeah. It's so well known. Well, it, the book, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I read Keith Richards' biography, also Eric Idle, who writes the foreplay, he calls it in the book. Yeah, my, um, my foreplay. Yeah, yeah and, uh, you know, another, and, and your book as well. It's uh, this fascinating look into... I don't know, I think maybe the English travel better uh, or something. I'm not sure. But it's Eric and Keith, especially, I think they're a little older than you because yeah. they talk about the post-World War II thing. And then yeah. a lot of them had nothing to do but go to art school. And that's why uh, they had that. But yours is the same way where you sort of stumble into all these journeys. And as a football fan, one of your stories reminded me of when I sat down at the bar besties in Hermosa Beach and I was having a beer and I s turned out to be sitting next to George Best. Oh, wow. Ed, the, you know, the great one. And I just looked at him. I said, oh, you're bestie. And he's like, yeah. And no one's bothering him. And he's sitting yeah, there. Yeah. I think that's a wonderful thing. And you have a story about uh, the former captain of the German national team that you met. I think <laughs> you, you, you thought he was in a Sunday kick around league or something. Tell, tell us that story. Yeah, yeah. I was on holiday in, in, in Italy. And, and we were staying at this hotel right on the sea. It was beautiful overlooking the ocean. I mean, the Mediterranean, just south of Genoa. I came down, you know, for breakfast, a little hungover, probably knowing, you know, me at a weekend on holiday and it's like a buffet breakfast and I'd rolled out of bed and I'm in line in the buffet line and there's these guys in tracksuits, you know, lined up just in front of me. And uh, I, I thought, oh, you know, they're playing a Sunday game like us, you know, and, and I started <laughs> talking to one of them and he had a foreign accent of some kind. And uh, I, I gathered he spoke very good English. And we just started chatting and I said, oh, oh, you're playing today. And he said, yeah, yeah, we've got a game this afternoon. I said, oh, yeah, I, I, I play on a Sunday league team. 
<laughs> you, know, and, and, you know, we play at a school in LA, and um, it's a bunch, great bunch of guys, you know. Um, and and he said, "Oh, it's great. Well, what position do you play?" And I said, I'm, "I'm I'm midfield now. I was a forward, but I'm I'm really getting slower now, so I play in midfield. But I've still got a good engine." He said, "Yeah, yeah, me too. I'm, I'm forward, but." I'm getting a bit slower too, you know. And I figured now, he's, I think he's German. And um, anyway, we're chatting away and he was asking me very good questions. And, um, and then, <laughs> so I, I said, are you in a league? And he said, well, well we <laughs> are. He, he said, we are, yes. Um, but today we're playing in a cup game. And I said, oh, great. Yeah, yeah, that's nice. We sometimes play in the Santa Barbara tournament for the over 40s. <laughs> and he goes, yeah. I said, what cup game? He said, um, it's... <laughs> It's the Italian Cup final, uh, and we're playing at okay. Genoa Stadium, you know, which is a big 40,000 students. Yeah. Genoa, and I said, oh, 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 I see. Yeah, and they said, what, what's, um, what's the team? He said, it's Roma. It's AS Roma. And, <laughs> and now the embarrassment starts. Yeah, it's like, now, like, oh, yeah, purple tracksuit. Oh, fuck. Yeah, shit. And then, and then, then it I, hits you. I, I said, uh, oh, God, I'm so sorry. Um, I didn't realize that's fantastic. I said, um, and, uh, I, uh, my name's Jim, and, and, and uh, he said, yeah, I'm, I'm Rudy, Rudy Vola. And it turned out he was Rudy Vola, the captain of Roma. In the Sunday League, yeah, Roma. Yeah, and, yeah. and the year before, he'd captained Germany to win the World Cup. And of course I knew who he was, but, you know, he had long hair and a moustache, and everybody had that in those days. Right. So that's my excuse. But I, and, and that it was early on a Sunday morning, but I, I was mortified. He was so sweet, though, and said, no, don't worry about it. And I said, I'm a massive football fan. I know who you are. I watched you hold the World Cup aloft. And yeah. anyway, good luck this afternoon. He said, thank you. And then my embarrassment got even worse the next day when I picked up the paper, newspaper, and saw that not only had Roma won 1-0 in the cup final, but he'd scored the only goal. Because <laughs> so, you didn't recognize him. He figured I, he had to get more famous. Yeah, he, I, I fired him up. I fired him up. That was oh, Well, spe speaking of your Sunday league, um, you uh, actually gave uh, Rod Stewart, who I've played with a little bit, who can actually play, Rod Stewart. Yeah. Uh, he's actually got some game, but you gave him some stitches. I did. Rod, Rod, I played with Rod for a few years and he was right back and I was right midfield at that point. And we went up for the same ball. We were on the same team in a, in a game, a league game on a Sunday. Um, and, uh, and we clashed heads, uh, or rather we didn't clash heads. We, as he landed, his head hit my knee. And um, we got, both got up and uh, he, he said, you're right, mate. And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. He said, but you're not. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, you've got blood pouring down your face. And he goes, oh, what do you, what, oh, yeah. And he put his hand up and felt it. I went, oh, God, it, how bad is it? And I said, it's bad. And he kind of went off and disappeared. Uh, and, uh, it, it, you know, it, he was fine. I mean, he wasn't in any pain or anything. My knee was perfectly fine. Just had an imprint of Rod Stewart's head on it. Um, and then the next day I saw these tabloids. People were calling me from England saying, Oh, I heard you, you smashed Rod Stewart in the face and uh, the, you split his head open. And uh, it's like, of course, they distorted it, the British press. You of know. course, yes. And, oh, the and, British and press has got figure. Yeah, Jim Piddock smashes Rod Stewart's face in. And um, so I didn't even bother retracting it. It's just so stupid. And then I saw him about two days later, three days later. It was on Tuesday night, I think. Um, and we were tra for training and I thought, oh, I couldn't believe he was there. And I, so I went up and said, hey, you okay? And I looked and it, there was absolutely no sign of this massive gash. Right. And I said, what happened? And it, it, first of all, he said, my mum says I can't play with you anymore. <laughs> That's good. I like that. You're a dirty player. Said, yeah, I said, well, how, what happened to it? And he said, well, I went to Alana. That was his ex-wife right. at the time, Alana Stewart. So I went to a plastic surgeon and he fixed it up a treat. And it was extraordinary. I mean, so by the way, if you ever need plastic surgery, seek that person out because it, it was flawless. I mean, always uh, ask a supermodel, Jim, if you need some it, cosmetic work. Exactly. Yes. Always ask a supermodel. And, and Scottish, Scottish kids tend to be tough. So he probably took it in, in, uh, in, in stride. Um, one thing, a little bit, of, a tidbit I read in here, I wanted to, for you to elaborate a little bit on because you just touch on it quickly. But Ian McShane, yeah. his father, you acted with him a bunch and, and produced with him. Um, his father played for Manchester United? Yeah, yeah. I haven't produced with him, but I, I've been in, I was in a film with him. I spent three months with Ian in, in Romania. Um, he's, he's great. I nicknamed him Mad Dog because he is totally insane. Yeah, he scares um, the shit out of me. Even he really yeah, does yeah, when no. he's acting. And, and by the way, what a lovely quote he gave me for the book. I mean, in the beginning of the book, his quote is, is so sweet and kind. He loves it. 
There's, I think, 36 endorsement quotes from celebrities, and his is very, very sweet, you know, because people think he'd just go, you know, you, you see you next Tuesday. Fuck off. Um, so, uh, but, but, but we, yeah, we worked together. And then uh, I, I would talk with him and Chris Eccleston about football all the time, and Chris is a big Man United fan. And then I discovered as we were talking that the Ian's father played for Manchester United in the 50s, yeah. Unbelievable. And his quote is this, dry as a bone, lethal as a rapier. Is that how you pronounce rapier. it? Lethal rapier. Lethal as a rapier. rapier. Lethal as a rapier. It couldn't put it down. Great read. Hey, that's high praise from me and McShane. Nice. Yeah, McShane. And he didn't yeah. swear in it. He didn't I, swear. That's fucking amazing. Yes. Well, I forget what that movie was. It was in Ben Kingsley. It just... just oh, yeah. Sexy great, Beast. Yeah, Sex Sexy yeah. Beast. My God. Yes. I was afraid One of my favorite movies. One of my favorite movies. What's your fucking problem, Poncho? Sit down, Poncho. Fucking yeah. guy in the plane. Scared everybody. Well, Jim, man, I had a great time watching footy this weekend. Your your uh, uh, great team, Crystal Palace, doing really well with Patrick Vieira uh-huh. there now. So really? you got to be happy. Uh, you got to be very proud of the book you put together. Caught with my pants down and other tales from a life in Hollywood. You've had an amazing life, amazing stories. Thank and you. from the sounds of it, you have a whole lot more life to live. So uh, best it of luck, looks brother. Like it. Hopefully. Yeah, no, it does. It does. Absolutely. Jim Piddick, thanks so much for joining us on Over the Ball. We'll talk to you it, next time. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. All right, that was great talking to Jim Piddick. But, you know, as soon as we got off, I realized, Chris, I didn't let you say shit. You said nothing. You didn't read Listen. the book, so I didn't know whether to let you in or not. I thought I handled that interview very well. Uh, <laughs> I, I kept it flowing. I didn't interrupt. It was great. I got to switch to a decaf, I think, because uh, I was—I really enjoyed the book. I fired through it, but um, I knew you hadn't read it, so I wasn't, you know, I, no, it, I could let it's you It's all in. good. I tell you, the pickup stuff is interesting, and, and I wanted to ask you because yeah. uh, I think I know that, am I right, that Gary Shandling used to run basketball games up? Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I wonder what the equivalent was in his world, you know, whether it sounds like it was BAFTA or something, but, you know, especially before soccer got really popular in our country, what did he do to find the game besides his dish? Where did he go play? You know, that would have been interesting to, to hear him oh, yeah. talk about that. Yeah. Oh, you say interesting questions. I should have asked is what you're asking. Yeah. Me. Well, yeah. and I'll, I'll tell you this, this is going to sound like a dick, but Gary Shandling had games at his house and um, Adam Sandler told me that I was, I was too good of a player to play with them. They were a bunch of Jewish comedians. <laughs> so, but Sandler's got game. But uh, yeah, yeah, I didn't get invited to the hoop games. Sandler mm. used to make fun of me. He goes, it's nothing like seeing an Irish Catholic kid playing with his shirt off in the summertime. They're like, that looks like you put, put a fork in the microwave. You know, that well, can you dunk? I could dunk when I was younger, but nothing. I heard Sarah Silver yeah, can dunk. Sarah? No, she yeah. could dunk. She could dunk. It's not a basketball. Um, <laughs> yes, sir. So um, it's cool to hear him talk about best in show. Uh, you know, it's, it's one of those movies that, you know, with, with two boys, a 13 year old and a 10 year old, it, it, the question I have is, okay, when do I introduce them to this movie? Right. Cause you, you want it to be something that they like enough that they're mature enough to catch a, a gist of so that they can enjoy it the way we all have through the years. Right. Right. I think. And then, um, just how it happened in the book. He just, and he talked about it a little bit in the interview, but he was working his ass off over at the BBC, you know, doing this one show where he's a, you know, was a writer and producer. And then he literally came back for just, and they did it in a day. Yeah. Uh, all that great, great stuff. So they were in the zone. So that's comedic gold. And like I said, if the movies I've been in and I'm only in them for, you know, 10 seconds, it's like three days of shooting. It's, it's absurd how slow movie making goes. So, uh, and it's, so it's a great story, but I love the thing with, you know, I love pickup games because when you get to a new city or new town, um, you, you meet guys who love the game and then you sort of can network about who's who and where's where. Um, you know, so I always, I always just love that. It'd be a great movie just about how relationships form and Sunday pickups. And you know this, Chris, as a player and as a coach, you can learn so much from someone watching them play are they a mouth do they yell do they play dirty do they not get you know drop back and pick up or any of that stuff um they they cannot play one touch can't even play two touch all these people you learn right away it's the same thing i say with basketball you always learn oh oh, you're not going to d up you're just going to shoot from the three-point line okay yeah i got your game there Um, yeah yeah there's a lot of personality that comes out you know it gets revealed when you watch someone play you get a sense for some of their tendencies in terms of personality and that can for sure you're right. And that's how you meet people, but it's also how you learn about people. And I love the fact that, especially in LA now that I've moved from New York city to LA, LA on Sunday mornings, you see games everywhere, every mm-hmm. piece of grass there is. And there's a lot of grass out here. 
Um, I know in New York City, it's a lot more difficult to find space because they, they chase, they'll chase you off a softball field because you're playing soccer, that a softball field that's used for, you know, four weeks a month, a year, you know, in the summer softball leagues, but they want you off. I swear there's still that, that knee-jerk reaction to the soccer that it's like sort of a foreigner's game. Get off. We got it. This is a football field. This is a baseball field, you know. Um, you think so? You th- do you think we've got to a tipping point where they just now expect us all to be out there playing and that just comes with it now? I think that, yeah, I think you're probably right. There, it ha- has hit a tipping point because so many kids play and so many yeah. fathers and mothers have been involved that they sort of, uh, you know, why can't we play? We're taxpayers and, you know. That's, yeah. That's, you know, um, well, that's the beauty of our sport is like if you have a ball, you can, whether it's just, on, like I used to play just sometimes by myself against the handball walls in Brooklyn you know, right. and everyone would be playing handball. And if there was a court open, I'd just be hitting the ball against the wall myself. And yeah, those were the teenage years. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, that's when you're supposed to be playing in the streets. So, uh, all yeah. right. What do, you, uh, what do you got this week? We got the national team. It is a big stretch here for their qualifiers. We talked about it in the opening. Uh, let's come back here next week and hopefully we've qualified by that point. Yeah. And it's nice. MLS is taking a break. You know, most teams that are going to get impacted aren't, aren't being asked to play. You know, so they don't have to miss players. And, and uh, you know, with, with the amount of uh, internationals uh, that are now playing in our league in MLS, uh, anytime there's a, a date like this, there's just so many players missing now. And it's good to see MLS kind of be agile and schedule around that. So there won't be too many impacted games in MLS. And is that new? Yeah, yeah. They, they've tried to – the calendars are different, but in a weird way because the – you know, the, the FIFA calendar and the MLS calendar haven't always gone together, right? Because we play through the summer and the rest, most mm-hmm. of the rest of the world, besides like Scandinavia or whatnot, don't. Um, but because the World Cup is at the end of the year, the calendar year this year, we can kind of align ourselves in a pretty good way. And so they're maximizing that by, you know, giving MLS teams the, the FIFA dates off as best as they can. Because, uh, you know, you're, the owners are, are arguing back, hey, you're incentivizing incentivizing us to go get the best possible players for the league. And we do, but then when it's time for them to go on dates, you're not giving us any reprieve. And so we're having to play without our best players and we end up losing points. It's not fair. And the bodies break down a little bit too. So, yeah. All right, man. Good show. I enjoyed uh, this conversation with Jim Piddick. This book is called caught with my pants down and other tales from a Hollywood life. Uh, Check it out. I got mine on Amazon. Hey, remember everybody, if you want to get in contact with us, ask Jim Piddick or anyone else that we have on the show a question, uh, we'll get it to them. Call us at 424-229-2247. That's 424-229-2247. You can text us at that one. You can leave a message. And uh, Chris, I forgot to ask who is his uh, favorite player that he's ever played with ah. and, and ever watched, you know? Uh, yeah. I, got, I got to remember to do that at the, end of the, at the end of the show each week. All right. Might be Rod Stewart. Yeah, my, maybe we'll get Rod on. That would, be, that would be fun. I doubt he remembers playing with me, but uh, maybe. All right, everybody. That's all the time we have on Over the Ball today. I'd like to thank our, Jack, uh, our guest, Jim Piddock, uh, the actor, um, and his new book, Caught With My Pants Down. Uh, Chris, you writing a book called Caught With Your Pants Down? You can't. That's, uh, I could write one, but you couldn't. You actually have a real Correct. job. That's going to be your, you're going to write the job. sequel, not me. That will be. I'll write the first one and the second one. So, uh, <laughs> all right, everybody, for Chris Chamonix, I'm Kevin Flynn. We'll talk to you next time on OTB. Mm-hmm.